why don't we just kick off with just some brief introductions. Um, Kelly, why don't we start with you? Great. And, I'm, yeah, yeah, please. Uh, I'm Kelly Rodriguez, CEO of Forge. Forge uh, is a marketplace for buying and selling private stocks. Uh, we have uh, some big news that we announced today, uh, but we are um, building access and solving the problems around transparency, uh, data, and uh, access to the private markets. Great, Kelly. Thank you. Melind? Yeah, hi, everybody. My name is Melind Mehre. I'm the founder and uh, CEO of Yieldstreet. Yieldstreet is the alternative digital platform really transforming access and fractionalization of alternatives for all. And what you can do on our platform, it's a direct-to-consumer platform, really get access to alternatives and modernize your portfolio from the 60-40 trap. Hi, I'm Asif Herji. I uh, am the president of Figure. Uh, just, I've been an investor, operator, founder of fintechs for a long time, did a robo-advisor in .com1, uh, was a partner at Andreessen and TPG, ran Ameritrade for a number of years, uh, ran Coinbase for a couple of years through its high growth period. What we're doing at Figure is we're basically trying to transform financial services or at least prove you can transform financial services through blockchain. So we've built a series of businesses on blockchain, including lending, capital, uh, cap table management, primaries, et cetera. And our whole goal is to get the industry to adopt. So. Great, guys. Let's, um, let's get into it. I, I really want this to be a dialogue. I want this to be a conversation. Um, really thinking about anticipating what your questions are. Um, access to alternative investments, hedge funds, private equity, real estate, pre-IPO, Kelly, has been historically reserved for large institutional investors. Um, in recent years, though, democratization of those products and asset classes have really taken off. What is driving the momentum? Where, where's this coming from? Uh, what are the implications of it? Kelly, maybe I'll kick off with you on that one. Great, thank you. Well, I think there's been a convergence uh, of events in the last five to 10 years in, in our space. It started with companies uh, really extending their private life. So a private company now in the world where there's 800 unicorns worth 2.6 trillion these companies are now staying private for between 12 and a half and 13 years before they go public. So there's tremendous value creation happening before a company ever becomes accessible to the public investor. That coupled with the fact that the CEOs and the boards that are running these companies need to retain their employees. They need to be on it for the long haul. Uh, and so liquidity and technology to enable liquidity and data to inform liquidity is a massive problem. And it hasn't crept up on us. This is a trend that's been going on for 10 years, at least. And so what we're seeing and what we're doing is trying to open the access to the market up to participants all around the world. And historically, for those of you in the crowd that are in the private equity or venture space, you know it's a fairly close uh, knit and, and, and tight and hard to get into club. And so we just believe that there's a lot of factors at work here and we've been focused on uh, building the tech and providing the data. And so the news today of, of our, uh, our announced uh, uh, SPAC going public was all about raising the capital to make this a scale platform for the, for the world. And so it's a very exciting time. Very exciting. I was, you, you beat me to it on the SPAC. Um, I was going to ask you that. So can you just walk us briefly through that and the motivation again? So you guys are now pu going public through a SPAC? Yeah, so we, um, Very have, exciting. We, we, we have partnered with uh, Motive Capital Corp, Life Masters, and a group of fintech specialists 
to build the business and really to, to make uh, uh, the, the, the private markets accessible through a public investment. And um, we have a belief, given what the phenomenal growth has been over the last three years, that to do this at scale needs a highly capitalized leader. Uh, and we believe being the first to market uh, in the public space uh, really is, a, is an advantage for us competitively. Yeah, well, congratulations again. That's a huge milestone, not only for, for Forge, but the industry to see uh, the investor reception on the platform business and a great job well done. Uh, Malin, let me in order go to same question to you. Huge tailwinds, uh, whether it's technology tailwinds, regulatory, you know, you run Yield Street, very successful uh, B2C platform in the alternative space. Uh, you recently also did a very impressive transaction. Uh, what are you seeing out there? What's what's happening and, and what's driving this growth? Yeah, so I think, Matt, uh, for us, it was really access to and distribution of alls is fundamentally broken. So if you think about institutions, they have 10 times more exposure to alls than retail. And the reason it is broken is that the ticket sizes are too large and the hold periods are too long. And I think, as you alluded to, in the last decade, A, the consumer behavior has dramatically changed. People need access, they want to get educated, and then they can transact. And number two, changes to regulation really enabled Yield Street type companies to really access a consumer that was not accessible uh, earlier. And I think so those are really the big tailwinds of how do you really modernize your portfolio from the traditional stock market investing that all of us had access to and invest like the top 1% or invest like institutions. And uh, now technology and data is enabling that. And I think that's really where, you know, people come to platforms like Yield Street. I think one real important trend, Matt, to think about is that ours is a self-service platform, right? So we don't have salespeople that will call you and say, hey, come invest on the platform. It's all about you engaging with the platform, engaging with the content. And uh, I think that really is, uh, is super fascinating in terms of consumer behavior and how and why they want access to ours. Malin, when you say the kind of the individual investor, you know, Obviously, we all know the kind of the do-it-yourself investor now is rising. Information has been democratized at a, a rapid clip. Can you give us an insight into kind of where a financial advisor may sit in five or ten years if now you are empowering the individual investor? So, uh, listen, I think there is, uh, in, in, in our opinion, I think an informed investor, whether it is going through a channel or directly through the platform, is a very important component, especially... Uh, thinking about uh, investment options that are away from uh, a traditional stock market. And so I think education in general is a very important component of how consumers are going to access various financial products and how consumers become comfortable. So, you know, Matt, one stat that we always quote is that uh, people spend 10x more time planning a vacation, just a single vacation, than they do on financial planning every year. And the reason for that is the consumer is very afraid. And, and that's why, by the way, the other big trend is we are all sitting on more than $10 trillion of cash. The savings rate has been the highest, right? And so I think uh, the, the whole idea about education and how education can really uh, be you know, a, a stepping stone for consumers to get access to wider set of products is very important. And I think there is really 
direct to consumer is a small channel the advisor ecosystem there are you know over 300000 advisors uh, in the country that have access to millions of consumer so they have a role to play definitely in terms of how do you bring that education and i know you guys are doing a, a lot of stuff around that that area so uh, i think uh, i think both of them is such a large market just in the us there are 50 million consumers uh, that can get access to alls with all the all the regulatory changes that have happened so so it's a huge market as if um you are spending a lot of your time in the blockchain world i think it's probably uh known to many of us but not as well understood uh right. on really the impact that the distributed ledger technology can have and smart contracts can have on the finance industry maybe just a yeah. a thought on one this massive growth that sure. we're seeing and then two how are you seeing it from your lens Okay. Uh, at figure. I th look, I think to me the answer on why alts is because it's because of the performance, right? Public markets are, are not are, they're not alpha. They're, they're they're beta, right? They're the beta part of our portfolio now. And so if you want to stretch for alpha, you're going to alts. And so in some weird way, alts are no longer alts. They're they're like a core part of your your portfolio. And if that's happening, that means unfortunately, because given the structure and the regulatory environments, the poor retail investor is actually disenfranchised from that. And so companies like Forge and Millen's company are doing a great job of trying to make that more accessible, right? I think from from our point of view, we see all that happening, but we see it going to blockchain in the end, right? And it's so let me let me take a step back. If you view crypto and blockchain as an asset class, you've misunderstood it, right? That's like that's like sitting there and saying circa 1999 or 98 that the internet is a class of stock. It isn't. It's just a way to build an application. Blockchain is simply a way to build an application and the best things about blockchain are one it gets rid of intermediaries because you can do bilateral real time settlement peer to peer and two is it acts as a registry. So if you think about oh it's going to blow away all sorts of cases where I need an intermediary or I need an escrow agent or something else guess what financial services is right in the in the crosshairs of, of that. The financial services industry is going to get transformed more than any other industry because of blockchain. And we're going to go to bilateral real time settlement, we're going to release a ton of liquidity, we're going to release a ton of capital we're going to drop costs you know financial transactions are going to be as cheap as sending an email that's the that's the thesis one of my big frustrations when i was running coinbase was almost every single project that came to us was basically token speculation in disguise and right. it wasn't really getting at how do i how do i refinance my house cheaper how do i just do my banking cheaper and so we built a blockchain to do exactly that had the speed scalability performance and security you need in financial services let it out in the wild and then because our industry is loath to adopt anything without proof we created figure as an operating entity and just use case by use case we prove it's working right so we've gone from nothing to about a half a billion in loans now that we do in real time settlement we've taken a 90 day process and made it basically capital in advance to the point where we now have third parties adopting it and we've done the same thing for so we've done that for lending we we're doing it for for marketplace businesses and we're now we're doing it for banking and so you will see if you again if you think of blockchain or crypto as an asset class you've got it wrong it's a way to build an application and if you haven't figured out how it's going to ups, upset your world you're about 5 years behind so i've read something today you've had an announcement uh around stablecoin that's right can you just enlighten us on exactly the impact of that and yeah. that's such a big deal yeah so so today the for the first time um a us bank minted a stablecoin backed by us currency now and a stable coin is 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 simply a crypto token that represents that fiat right and it could be anything it could be gbp it could be it doesn't matter but in this case it was usd okay 
The regulator has never allowed that to happen up until today, and it happened today on, on Provenance blockchain. Okay, and the second thing that happened is we used it to settle real-time bilateral, no, no, capital, no, no capital tied up in liquidity, et cetera, a secondary transaction of a private company. Okay, and so this is, these are two enormous milestones in the industry, and you will see things that Millen's company does or things that Forge does moving to a blockchain-based settlement system because it will be faster, it'll be cheaper, less, less capital required, and therefore higher access for everybody. That's where we're going. Kelly, just on that government kind of being our friend for, at least for now, uh, and regulation, it does seem like they are helping the process of democratization. Uh, they, they recently changed the, or modified the accreditation rules to include certificates in education. So they're kind of, again, opening up. That's great, and you know they'll continue to do more. Are they doing enough? Are they doing it fast enough? And then are they pushing the liability to the platform in any way? Do you feel that pressure now that you're kind of delivering access, it's very efficient, and the government is now allowing it in a more fluid way? Do you got, at Forge feel the pressure to be able to regulate a bit yourself? I mean, we, we, we really took that, the, the, the compliance and regulatory requirements to trade in the asset class seriously 10 years ago when this company was formed. So I think the idea that, that now you're seeing pressure for governments to allow more participation in the asset class is a great thing. But like everything with government, it's probably you know, five years behind where it, where it needs to be. So we see that as a, as a benefit. Anything that provides greater access uh, is positive. I think we we believe that the rules are really clear, though, for what we do, uh, and and we're going to continue to build systems. and And as a platform business, we've been highly focused on building the network of participants on the platform, and we've been watching the emergence of blockchain technology. And we could see that at some point we could consolidate potentially what a custodial service does with a settlement platform, and really bring uh, efficiency to the market. But I think depending on where you're coming from, if you're building the technology and the infrastructure to facilitate blockchain securities, um, eventually big networks, big platforms are gonna have to adopt that. Uh, and along the way there, I think we've gotta watch what's going on, not just in the US regulatory environment, but globally. Right. Today our business has investors from 70 different countries. So we, we really need to be mindful uh, about what it takes uh, and be adhering to the rules within those geographies. Now, I think with OSIF representing and the technology that will enable us to really do this at scale is, is super exciting. And for us, it's just a matter of, you know, are, are we at the scale now where we'll benefit from that? And do we see the adoption of it uh, in a manner that the business model serves what we're doing? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're excited, but I, I do think you are seeing governments move. In fact, if you go back about 10 years ago, they were starting to talk about this uh, around alternative assets in the, in the sort of 2012, 2013 timeframe. And so it's good that it's finally coming along. And I think, you know, if you think about it, if you work for one of the 800 unicorns uh, and you work in a SaaS software business, w w why shouldn't you be qualified to invest in a SaaS software business? Right. Especially if you work there for eight years and you develop an expertise that probably most financial advisors don't have, if you think about it. So yeah, I see it. I see it moving in the right direction. Melin, the the narrative around alternative investments, hedge funds, private equity, all the things on your platform was always a bit as it, as you look at the investor, the SEC would say, well, if you're wealthy enough, 
you can afford to lose money. And that was kind of that mantra that they kept saying. So they had these net worth requirements. Those are being modified. And as Kelly just said, now we're adding education because they finally realized if you're not wealthy, you can also be smart. So it, it, it's coming along. But are you feeling as a platform provider, an enabler of access, any need for education or for responsibility of the products on your platform to the end investor as the barriers are going down? Yeah, I think, uh, listen, uh, I'm going to make a couple of kind of provocative comments here, right? So one aspect is that, of course, education is very important, as I said earlier. And I think uh, today we have mechanisms to deliver education that has never been available to us 5, 10, 20 years ago, right? And uh, consumer pool and their behavior is very different. So we have to keep that context in, in mind. But at the end of the day, we are also building a platform that provides you with diverse access to a variety of investment options. And outside of your FDIC insured account, really performance is all dependent on a variety of different factors. And you need to educate the consumer on that. And, um, and so I think that context is you know, very important for us to, to keep in mind. And if you think about, let's just take GameStop as an example, okay? The, or AMC, right? Like the stock had its ups and downs. You don't call Fidelity and say, hey, what is happening here? Because consumers are making those trades and, and driving up the price. And leave those two aside because those are obviously very speculative cases. But a simple company like an Apple or a Facebook, you don't call Fidelity or Charles Schwab saying, hey, the, the investment went down. So I think alternatives have to have that level of acceptance. And one of the biggest factors that alternatives don't have that type of acceptance is because they were not widely available. And number two, liquidity. And what is the role of secondary market? Because if secondary market liquidity was there, then that price discovery, price action aspect, which is so powerful in the public markets, would be, would be really valuable to the consumer. And I think, you know, as if that's like, obviously, uh, we all know and speak yeah. about it, right? It's one of the biggest uh, use cases for blockchain where you could do those type of settlements. And, uh, you know, Kelly, to your point, with all that capital locked up, now you can build on use cases for the consumer to say, hey, I can take my private company stock, maybe get a loan against that, or I want to de-risk it. So maybe I can, you know, take it from the private company and put it on a platform like Yield Street. Um, you know, and, and so I think those are the types of use cases, in my opinion, over the next five years that are going to really uh, be adopted. And I think uh, regulation has to really understand those changes in, in technology and data and access uh, that exist today that didn't exist you know, 10 years ago. Are you seeing that? Let me slightly disagree because I, I think the, the world is becoming more decentralized, not centralized. Yeah. And so the mindset of there's a regulator that's going to protect you and there's a platform that's going to vouch for you, that's a dated mindset. Right. Right. Because in the new world, look, there's more money being made in NFTs right today than just about any place else. I'm not suggesting anyone get into <laughs> NFTs, by the way. I'm just saying there's more money being made in NFTs faster than just about anywhere else. That is a completely unregulated, not, not, not considered a security marketplace, yet it trades and acts just like any other marketplace any of us are familiar with, right? And that's, that's where the future is going. And the future is going to decentralized platforms where anybody can create an asset and put it up there and anybody can buy it and anybody can trade it. And so then, well, who do you hold responsible if it blows up? Or how do you protect the, the, the investor from the greater fool theory, right? Like, so there will probably be entities that go out and produce some sort of pseudo-advisory function and say, I will curate these things for you. I will try and do some risk assessment for you, et cetera. 
maybe we get there, but the world is getting less and less centralized, more and more decentralized. And so I think this, it's, a, it's, a, it's an archaic view to say that there's gonna be a central body regulator and a central body you know, standard that you're gonna meet. I don't think that's true. Kelly, what do you think about that? Well, I think in, in the private share class, there's just, there's tremendous pressure to get access to it. And so I think it's a path of least resistance. The, we exist uh, with a view that as a platform, we wanna integrate with anybody that wants to participate in the asset class. So I think the definitions that have shifted is the idea that you're gonna create some centralized platform and no one else is gonna be able to compete or integrate. And I think what you have to do is, is accept the fact that uh, in the future, we're gonna all need to have some connectivity to each other. And to the extent that uh, we wanna use uh, blockchain technology and we want to allow people to freely move from Forge to Yield Street to whatever else is offered on, uh, you know, on, on Providence. I think that that's just something that you have to build into your model and you shouldn't try and, and consider your platform as something that you're going to protect and build walls around. Uh, I think the regulatory environment is going to be really interesting to see how that unfolds because I, I, I'm just not sure uh, how that translates into velocity in different geographies in the world. We, we, uh, it, it, the second most traded geography in the world for us is Asia. Uh, and depending on where you are in Asia, uh, it, it's really about that's where unicorns are and that's where investors who don't have access to U.S. unicorns want to trade from. And so we're there because that's where we've got velocity. I think we'll, we'll have to wait and see how quickly, you know, we can trade in, in Eastern Europe or, or in Europe in general or South America. But, but right now, I think uh, we're, we're trying to follow where the volume is. So, uh, sorry, if, yeah, if I may just say, you know, I think just so as if I think I, I'm agreeing with you, I think broadly speaking, just if you think about the power of consumer uh, change and, and need, I think that is a very important aspect of how financial services are going to evolve over the next decade. So think about highly regulated or fairly regulated industries like taxi cab and hotels, right? You now have Uber and Air, Airbnb that have become verbs. And the reason why they've become verbs is because consumer want it. And I think what Asif was saying is that consumers want to trade into this, right? And so the, the idea really is going to be how are platforms going to deliver that product over the next decade? And uh, I think that is a very important aspect that all of us need to consider and appreciate because at the end of the day, it is all about us. And the consumer is going to inherit $70 trillion over the next two decades from kind of baby boomers to generation X, Y, Z. We may not follow the same traditional ways that our parents followed, right? And so the question really is going to be, how do you deliver that you know, financial infrastructure uh, in wealth management, in alternative assets to the consumer? And what would be the rails on which it would be built? Well, just on that, Melinda, you know, if you look at the mutual fund industry or the ETF industry, they're not regulating the investor, they're regulating the product provider. Uh, and right now in this kind of gray area where a lot of the private funds or private securities don't fall underneath the regulatory environment. So maybe that ultimately becomes the direction, which is the unleashing of the consumer, as you're suggesting, uh, which uh, as if I completely agree with you, it's gonna become completely decentralized, but the, maybe the onus of the quality control will ultimately fall back on the product provider if they do in fact want access to Look, I think, yeah, I think but certainly let's, let's... from a data, I think certainly from a data and disclosure standpoint, I think one of the things that 
that we believed and been talking about out, out in the world is that the asset class is interesting. Is a consumer capable? Do they have access to the proper information, data, and disclosures to make an investment decision? I think that's the one area that is probably the next phase of expansion for us. Right. But, but I just I know this is the alts panel, but let's just pick up on that point. Why should mutual funds and ETFs even exist today? Given that trading is free and you can buy slices of stocks and you have robo-advisors, you don't need any of those things. Because every one of us as an individual should be able to go through a risk analyzer. Within two minutes, we should be able to get a package portfolio, which is slices of various stocks, push a button, and it happens. We don't need ETFs. We don't need ETFs. We don't need mutual funds. Like, again, it's a dated mindset. And so we're going to this environment where you will be able to, on the fly, create all these things using alts, using, using non-alts, et cetera. That's the world we're going to. And, and it, it's, it's kind of like whole life, thank God, finally died because of term, right? Mutual funds are, are thank God, finally dying because of ETFs. But ETFs are going to die because in, in this world of free trades and, and stock slices, you don't need them. So, so that, again, I know this is the alt panel, so we shouldn't. No, no, that it's, path, it's, look, these are it's, very, it's, inter, these are very intertwined. World, we can't, a, we can't yeah, pull them apart. It's a real world example of that's where we're going. And that's, and that's what's happening with alts. Alts are becoming more liquid, more data driven, more platform enabled on blockchain with real time settlement. Right? And, that's the, and that's the next phase of what we're seeing now with data on exactly. our platform. With, with that, you, you can go in and you, you can buy a basket and design your own portfolio without having to know whether I need to buy Uber or Lyft. Exactly. And so what you need is somebody like, like a forge that sits there and says, I've done the work. I've, I've collected the data on this asset. Okay. This is what they perform like or yield street saying, I've done the work I've created. Okay. What is that? That sounds a lot like what an investment bank used to do. So right? I think the, the demand story on the consumer side, the individual investor or the financial advisor on behalf of the individual investor, I think we get that. They've been disappointed. Active management has failed. Alternatives are the new active. You gave Kelly a variety of your reasons on the private pre-IPO side, but let's look at the demand from the product perspective. Yeah, you know, SF, you just uh, yeah. made an announcement on Apollo. That's right. Doing something. Let's get into the mind of the asset manager or the corporation on what motivates them to want to be on a platform. Why do they care at all about small investors? What's going on on that side? Let me get, can I start with that? Okay, so so you know, I was a partner in TPG. I was a partner in Dreesen. We've had this discussion with Apollo. One of the, you know, one of the biggest things is if you think of the infrastructure you require to run a fund, right? Because of the cost of that infrastructure, that's why the ticket size is so high. That's why you want fewer investors rather than more investors. It's just it's a pain in the butt to have to manage thousands of investors when you when you have that kind of an inflexible platform. Well, go to the kind of platforms we're talking about. It, you know, whether the investor is writing a million dollar check or a ten thousand dollar check, it doesn't matter. You can you can manage them both the same way for the same amount of cost. And so you know, forward leaning companies like Apollo are looking at that and saying, we want to put a fund on chain. We want to be able to have secondary liquidity on that chain because that'll, that'll, that'll be net good for the investors. And by the way, I don't have to deal with LPs coming to me saying I want liquidity. And so that's what they're doing. So the first fund Apollo is going to put on our blockchain, on, sorry, not our blockchain, on the Provenance blockchain is going to be a, a new fund of which some portion of, the, of that fund is going to be exchange tradable. Right, to create liquidity. And that's just the first of many that they're going to put on. And they're not the only asset manager. And this is, this is great because it's not the LPs saying, please find a way for, for me to get liquidity. It's the fund manager saying, this is a net better way to create the fund. And again, this is the path that, that, that these fund managers are on, right? Apollo being, being at the start. If you take a look at companies, though, yeah. uh, if a company is going to stay private for 13 years, I think SpaceX is 
18 years. What was it 10 years ago? What was it 20 years ago? 20 years ago, it was five and a half years. So a company was going public at five and a half with a valuation of 550 million. Wow. Now it's 13 years at a valuation of 5 billion. Okay. And so these are capital raising machines. When you have five, six, seven rounds of capital and you start having employees whose stock options have vested in four years, and they've gone through three full vesting cycles. The company's got to use technology and has got to use a more market-based pricing mechanism for primary and secondary capital. So the idea that you're going to go out and raise money every year from the same 12 VCs that you know just doesn't make any sense. And particularly if you're starting to offer secondary trading to, to venture and in, institutional investors or your own employees, um, they want to know that they're not selling their stock at a discount. And we've all seen the public-private discounts that are going on uh, in, these, in these tender offers that started five years ago. Those are, those are going to go away. Why, why would you discount your stock by 30% for your employees when there's an investor halfway across the world that's willing to pay you full you know, preferred market price for it? So I think you know, for a company, it's about, hey, I, I need to plug into a capital machine so I'm not spending 40% of my time running my company in capital raising mode. Yeah, and I think uh, to, uh, to add to this uh, whole comment around why supply side would want to work with platforms like us, I think um, it's really two aspects to it. One is it's not about today. So today we might be able to raise only a portion of that fund, but in two years, instead of a $20 million check, you would be a $250 million LP. In three years, you would be the entire billion dollar fund. That's one aspect of it in terms of the, the value that uh, retail has, given the dynamics that we have been discussing. The second aspect, in my mind, which is much more powerful, is what's the role of capital formation and how's that changing? You know, Kelly, to your point. So for me, it is a completely different way to look at it. Historically, Wall Street has operated by saying, hey, I'm raising a $2 billion fund for XYZ strategy. Now let me go find LPs. The LPs can be institutional, retail, international, domestic, you know, small, big, whatever may be the case. Can you flip that model? and say, I'm actually now going to go to retail and say, hey, what is the type of product you want? Is it 8% yield, three-year duration, and uh, you know, some asset type? And then you can aggregate that demand on a platform and say, okay, great, KKR, Apollo, whatever may be the case, I have $500 million allocated to this type of a yield risk spectrum. Can you deploy that capital? So instead of you getting stuck in a strategy, because your macroeconomic factors change many times and the fund are multi-year, can you flip that and say, hey, the consumer wants this because the consumer is living life very differently. We no longer work for 30 years in one company and we need liquidity at different points in time. And so out of the $100 of allocation, yeah, sure, you should have something that uh, a big portion should be allocated for, for your long-term goals, but there are short-term and medium-term liquidity goals that we have um, and we need, uh, the desire to earn income can change that capital formation story. So I think that's really where technology can play like an unbelievable role. So institutional investors, family offices, endowments, pensions typically have 30 to 50% weighted in alternative investments broadly, including pre-IPO. Wealth management can range wildly, but as low as nothing to up to 10 or 15%. Total US wealth management, north of 20 trillion. That's just money professionally managed by a financial advisor. So it's a multi-trillion dollar jump ball right now. 
And there's big firms like Apollo and like Blackstone and like Carlisle and many, many others that are seeing this as, as Kelly, you just said, a very important capital source and capital formation source coming forward. At the same time, you have the SEC and other regulatory bodies seemingly making it easier, pushing the responsibility away from a net worth requirement to product providers, platforms playing a neutral facilitation role. I mean, that's a pretty powerful dynamic. You can see a complete industry change. Then you overlay blockchain. That could completely transform the entire industry on how we even think about doing business. Maybe us if we don't even need fund structures anymore. Possibly. 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 Let's play the game. Five years out, ten years out. Okay? We're sitting here at Salt. Anthony's Karamochi is still here doing his thing. What what does that world look like? And I want to start with USOP because I think that from the blockchain perspective, what's this conversation around democratization sounding like in ten years from now? I would I would posit that in in ten years what what you'll big the big structural changes that'll happen is you will move settlement to be bilateral real time. Just can you just explain that a little deeper? Yeah. So, so why why did GameStop happen? Right. GameStop happened because we have a circa 1970s architecture underpinning our securities marketplace. Right. So if you go back in the 1960s, literally when you traded stock, a broker would send a paper security from one brokerage house to the other to settle the security. That's what happened. And the stock market would shut down Wednesday afternoons and Fridays because of the volume. That's where we were in the 1960s. And so they created this, the DTCC, which is a centralized body that they said, this is stupid. We'll put all the paper certificates in one place and we'll have an agency just have a tabular format, figure out how it, how it works on computers. Awesome suggestion for 1970. We're still on that technology, which is why it takes us three days to settle a trade. That means if you've got trillions of dollars trading every day, guess what? You have trillions upon trillions of dollars of liquidity that's margined across all these houses. And the DTCC is the ultimate carrier of that margin. And so the DTCC went to Robinhood, sorry, it went to the broker, it went to the houses that Robinhood used and said, hey, you're asking me to take leverage on these on, on GameStop. I don't like it anymore. I'm going to increase my margin requirements 3x overnight, right? That's what happened. That is, that is the antithesis of a bilateral real-time settlement system. It's a three-day, lots of capital tied up, really complex system, which leads to things like Archegos happening because no one can figure out how much liquidity was actually lent to Archegos, right? A bilateral real-time system works really simply. I have a wallet on crypto. Milland has a wallet on crypto. I want to trade with Milland. I don't even know who Milland is. I just know that I, had, I have a security. I put it on a marketplace. I put out a bid. Sorry, I put out an ask. He hits it. The blockchain will settle that transaction in real time. It'll move stablecoin from his wallet into mine, and it'll move the security from my wallet into his. We're done. There is no settlement risk there. It doesn't match the trade if it can't do it. Now, everyone sits there and says, oh, you just pre-funded every trade. You can't do that. No, because Milland could have gone to Kelly and said, my business is trading. I want to borrow some, some money to do that. Kelly lends him the money. That's the money that's sitting in his wallet. That's what that's what settled. We we built on provenance a completely automated bilateral real-time settlement trading system, which we showed the DTCC, which handles today's volumes and more of the New York Stock Exchange with zero requirement for margin. Zero. 
because it works so fast, right? So it would take trillions of dollars literally <coughs> out of the system in terms of capital required. It would drop costs even more. The current system, the entrenched incumbents don't want to change it, right? So until we convince the banks, the traders to move to the system, that's where you'll go. That, that, that's what it'll take to get there. But that's where we're going. Is, it, is, that, is that the roadblock? Is that the challenge? Is it getting the community? Yeah, why would the DTCC adopt it, right? Then what's the role for the DTCC? So, so I think what's going to happen eventually, because everything takes longer, but in the 10-year horizon, you will, you will move to bilateral real-time settlement globally for almost every asset class, because almost every asset class will be tokenized and it'll be exchange-traded. That doesn't mean it's exchange-traded 24-7. A lot of these things don't have 24-7 liquidity, but they will have liquidity over certain periods of time whenever the asset manager decides to turn the liquidity on. That's the world we're going in. And you will construct on the fly, whether it's uh, what we consider today public securities or whether they're private securities or alts, whatever, that, that distinction is blurring. Lynn, same question. Let's project out Yield Street or other platforms. Where are we in five and 10 years with your platform? Yeah, I think, uh, listen, um, I, I agree with uh, several points that uh, Asif made. I think for us, uh, or, or just generally from a wealth management perspective, uh, it needs to be much more of a dynamic system for the consumer, depending upon where they are in their life needs and, and what type of liquidity do, uh, do they want. So can you create portfolios that take advantage of that type of uh, consumer construct? At the same time, how can you, you know, really if you think about the top 1% and the family offices, the way they invest, what type of liquidity do you provide them against their illiquid assets? What type of margin lending products do you have for them? So how does all of these various uh, aspects come together is uh, in, in a real-time system, I think is where wealth management is, is going, in our opinion. And also, uh, you know, as uh, Asif uh, eloquently said, is the primary driver of alpha. We, we are strong believers in that over the next, uh, next decade. And uh, so we feel that it's a golden age of fintech. And I think uh, that's really where that real-time uh, platforms are, are going to be really very valuable. You described Yield Street as a digital bank in a press release or something I read recently. But you're also a platform where individual investors get access to alternative investments. Are those the same thing? Just kind of pulling that thread a bit? Yeah. Uh, so, listen, I think for us, it's, uh, it's mostly we are the, 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 the next generation investment and wealth management platform. I think the idea of a, a digital private bank is how do you provide the same type of product and access that a, a, a traditional private bank provides, but do it using an automated platform. So that's really the very simple way to kind of think about what Yield Street uh, is uh, is really aspiring to be. Look, I think in ten, I think in ten years, uh, businesses that make money by settling trades or by matching trades will give way to businesses that make money by providing data and insights. I think uh, yes in a world where Asif's vision comes true, we would want to be and would accelerate being a fully global business that can provide real-time liquidity on our asset class anytime you want it or need it, whether you're raising primary capital or your secondary capital. But you also need someone who's a data provider that can tell you what came before, what's out there in the world that looks like this. Uh, how, do I, how do I make a purchase decision and discover pricing uh, I think that's the kind of business that these platform companies turn into in five to ten years. Do companies ever need to go public again with Forge? I mean, in, in, theoretically, no. In fact, there, there are companies that we talk to now. Uh, if you take a look at the amount of liquidity, secondary liquidity that was, has been done on, 
on SpaceX in the last three years. I think it's something like $8 billion. I mean, they, they've essentially turned over and, and, and provided unlimited secondary liquidity to anybody that's bought into them in the last you know, 10 years. So I think it just depends on whether or not the rules change and whether or not you can have 4,000 people on your cap table. I think there's some regulatory reasons why you'd need to go. But from the standpoint of access to capital and liquidity, Nice. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I 100% actually agree with you in, in the sense that I, I feel that permanent capital should exist at an asset level and there should be liquidity at the user level. And if you can bring out that equilibrium, like it's unstoppable, right? And there are elements of I, I all think, of Yeah, it. I think that's totally right. I, I think the distinction between a public company and a private company is blurring. Well, there's a lot of firms out there, platforms or companies that are very interested to make sure that there's IPOs in publicly listed companies. So <laughs> when, when, does, uh, when does the announcement that the New York Stock Exchange is acquiring Forge well, or Deutsche Borsa invested or, heavily. I, I, they were our largest All powered investor, by blockchain. Yeah, when, around, when, yeah. when is that convergence going to happen? <laughs> Melin, maybe that's, that's actually a real question. When, when are you going to see a private investment funds, alternative investment funds offered on a stock exchange? Yeah, I think I, I, if I were placing bets, I would be more favorable of what Kelly was saying, which is, uh, do you really need to offer them even on private exchanges, right? Like we are launching one of the you know most prominent secondary VC funds on our platform later this month. And uh, frankly speaking, do you really need to go public? And can you just trade, you know, whether it's on Yield Street, whether it's on Forge, whether it's on Carta, you could actually have a very active trading market. And... Uh, so, uh, so my answer is that I, I, I don't know whether you would, you would want them to be on public, you know, public exchanges. So all three of you have general competitors. We all have competitors. I have competitors. I think we all probably agree that total addressable market is massive. So it's less about competition and more about market share for ourselves. But let's just talk winners and losers for a second. So maybe Kelly, you're shaking your head. What what are the companies that you think? And of course, you're going to put Forge in that category, top of the list, top of the list of winners. But what are the what are the losers, and ultimately not doing today? That what are they not seeing that you see? I think I think the one thing that jumps out is is anybody that thinks they're going to disrupt everyone in the ecosystem and own it all will be a loser. I, I think you have to be able to integrate, collaborate and allow participation uh, by the constituents who are, who are interested in your market. And in any attempt to build a sort of walled garden structure where you try and own everything, I think is a losing proposition. Yep, we see that all the time. Malin? I think for me it's uh, distribution pipes and how can you efficiently build, build distribution pipes is, is very important. And how do you make accessibility much more favorable to the consumer and not to the to the street. And I think uh, those companies that really embrace that, which is put the consumer first, design a product that's right for them and have the right pipes into those consumers are ultimately uh, going to be winners. And those that don't embrace that change in whether what's embedded finance and DeFi is doing, what is happening with consumer behavior, and they still think that they could control the, the those pipes to the consumers uh, may not do well. As up many blockchain yeah, companies or many companies at least put that label on themselves, whether that's totally true or not. 
Yeah, I think I think the, the the business models that are in trouble are any anything that's escrow based. If your business model is I provide escrow based escrow services. If, es if, if escrow if based. You, yeah, if your if your business model is I provide escrow services, you park capital with me, I charge you for that to, to do something. That's that model. So yeah. that so Schwab Fidelity and, and no no I wouldn't put in the title insurers. Title insurance. Okay. So or you know an escrow agent where if I'm buying a house I need to deposit funds at an escrow agent because they won't release them until the title clears and everything else. Like that those those models are all dead. Because again, we're going to bilateral real-time settlement, and so that's the that 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 model displaces the, the escrow-based business models. I think that's that's one thing, and Kelly Kelly alluded to that too in the in the settlement arena. I think the second the second arena is there are a lot of fund managers who, frankly, are are simply they they just they're closet indexers, right? Yeah. And and the performance will 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 come through that. And and if you're a closet indexer, you 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 have a short short life in this new world because people are going to see through that and they'll get they'll get they'll get they'll get the alpha cheaper somewhere else right and so so i think those are the two trends that i would i would look for uh, believe it or not we are out of time but i want to ask each of you one question you're you're all leaders in business you've mentored people you, you manage people you're growing firms uh so my lightning round final question uh what's one life lesson you wish you knew a lot earlier in life we can have an entire new session just on that question if you'd like. Who do you want to go first? Malin. All right. So I think for me, uh, take bigger risks, massive risks earlier in your career. That's the only time or that's one of the most favorable times to do that. And if I knew that, you know. I'm sorry, knew what? Take bigger risks. Uh, take risks, yeah. Yeah. And I think all of us are super conservative and, and most of us are. And. Looking at my background, you would not think that I'm, I'm a conservative guy. I've taken a bunch of risks, but I think uh, that's one lesson, uh, you know, just uh, I'm, I came to this country as an immigrant student, right? And so kind of follow that corporate route. And, and I did that for a few years. And I think today with access to data and technology, I think uh, if I knew that earlier in my, early, in my 20s, I think uh, it would be amazing. Ellie? Um, I'd say working in software uh, and fintech businesses most of my career, um, I've, I've come to believe that no matter how many engineers you hire, how much money you raise, your competitive advantage comes from building a tremendous culture in an organization where people uh, want a piece of changing the world and they want to work with other like-minded people who care about each other. And uh, I, I guess I've just come to believe that leadership and culture trumps uh, who's got more engineers. Yeah, I think that the, so I have a high schooler who's about to apply to college, and one of the things I'm telling him is it's all about your network. In the end, it's all about your network. The best opportunities always come from your network, and it's like build your network, do random favors for people in your network, not expecting anything in return, because at some point it's going to pay back tenfold. Great. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you.